0: You know, everyone in movies and books and popular media, there's a lot of like really negative possible outcomes that people are afraid of. You know, the, you might have heard the term doomer, right? People that think that AI is going to kill everyone or it's going to take all of our jobs. And then every corporation is going to basically be like running as a zombie organization that has no employees, but makes billions of dollars. And while those outcomes are not likely, Any movement towards some of those really negative outcomes could be problematic, could be dangerous, you know, make life worse for some people and better for others and tip the scale
1: towards inequality. This is the ERP Organizational Change Journal podcast brought to you by Nestle & Associates, a Newport Beach, California-based ERP organizational change management firm serving the private equity industry. The ERP OCJ seeks to share expertise, insight, experience, and research, and to create effective conversation to help guide ERP organizational change to real, measurable, and verified success. And now, here's your ERP expert and host, the founder of Nestle & Associates, Dr. Jack Nestle. Hello everyone,
2: Jack here. Today we're going to have fun discussing artificial intelligence. We'll discuss the alignment and control problem, economics of AI, heuristic imperatives, and a multiple objective optimization problem, and the global alignment taxonomy omnibus, which is an alignment of global super intelligence before it emerges with decentralized networks, an area that our guest is uh, very familiar with. Our guest today is an AI and AI alignment researcher, transdisciplinary polymath, a YouTube communicator and a post nihilist he shares on his youtube channel that quote my mission is simple help create utopia with ai Crystal clear, elucidation is my superpower. I use transdisciplinary approach, synthesizing numerous disciplines, including philosophy, history, evolution, coding, sociology, game theory, economics, and automation. I define utopia as a world where one, high standard of living for all humans, two, high social mobility for all humans, and three, high individual liberty for all humans. Interesting for sure. So let's dive in. Joining us from North Carolina, David, welcome
0: to the show. Hey, Jack, thanks so much for having me. And I'm looking forward to uh, to where our conversation takes us today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And your YouTube channel is, is so fun and you have such interesting topics, David. And I really appreciate the way you approach AI. And obviously, I think as a result, I'm not the only one because your, your following is growing. And so I do appreciate your work. But David, before we get started, can you introduce yourself further to our listeners and, and in particular, I, I know, maybe you talk a little bit about your clients and the idea and some of your other areas of interest. Uh, so, for example, polymorphic apps, cognitive architecture, and you talk a lot about this idea of, of crawl, walk, run, fly, and also better, faster, cheaper. And then the other mm-hmm. phrase that you also use occasionally is just natural language interface and reasoning engine. So can you just kind of briefly you know, talk to that before we get into some questions I have for you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so for, for any of your uh, audience that is not familiar, uh, you know, I got my career started, as many technologists do. I was in IT, infrastructure, cloud, automation uh, for about 15 years from 2007 until earlier this year. I guess that's 16 years. Um, and all the while, my real passion was artificial intelligence. And so I would revisit it every couple of years as the industry advanced. And then finally, in the last few years, uh, obviously, people are familiar with the GPT technology, which has really kind of kicked off the next revolution. And uh, so, you know, I started my YouTube channel to kind of share my work and my experiments. Um, I started a Patreon and started taking clients and uh, the rest is history. But, uh, you know, to, to introduce a little bit more about kind of what I've been up to specifically, obviously on YouTube, I uh, share videos, kind of explainers, tutorials, uh, evaluations and deep dives. Uh, and then for my clients, most of my clients, I, so I have clients of, of all sizes ranging from one person startups to, um, uh, one or two fortune 500 companies. Um, and most of what I do is actually uh, product design around generative AI. Uh, I also do a little bit of strategic consulting. People kind of want to know where AI is going, uh, even helping candidate selection. Uh, you know, one of my clients, they, they wanted me to help them pick a, a CTO, um, you know, kind of test their chops so to speak but yeah and so because of that a big big part of what i've developed is kind of okay how do people onboard cuz this is you know Ch- uh, chat gpt came out late last year it really exploded this year and so a lot of people are scrambling to kind of catch up and figure out where things are going and so you know the the crawl walk run fly model i actually collaborated with my wife on this who's a product owner at a at a data company And so this is kind of the model that we developed to help onboard companies into the generative AI space.
2: Very interesting, David. Uh, Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I'm so excited and and honored to have you join us today uh, because as I'd mentioned, I I really think uh, your YouTube channel is quite valuable and and interesting and and you have a lot of experience in programming and AI in general and, and your insight will definitely be valuable for our listeners. Uh, listeners, all of us here at the ERP OCJ hope you find this podcast useful as we share lessons learned, discover best practices, and explore the human element components of ERP organizational change. Please stay with us till the end. David will give us his actionable gold nugget of advice based on today's conversation, and I will recap today's key discoveries and offer my suggestions on how to implement what we've learned. Because our conversations here are built around the listen and learn approach, but it's when you apply what you've learned that you begin to move the needle forward. So let's start dive in. So David, the first question I have for you is, speaking of your YouTube videos, um, in one of your popular videos, you discuss how AI can create a post-scarcity leisure class where corporations can produce more with less. So let's talk about that in the context of business systems and ERP if, if we can. And so my first question is, how can AI redefine ERP and other business systems, particularly in the context of increasing productivity and reducing workforce?
0: Yeah, to provide a little bit of context uh, to color my answer is um, my career was in IT infrastructure. So I viewed ERP from kind of the un- the substrate, uh, you know, underneath all the technology supporting ERP systems. So if my answers are a little off color, that's why is because <laughs> I'm coming from a slightly different school of thought. Uh, but, you know, from a technology standpoint, most organizations are, are highly, highly dependent upon... Uh, obviously the the human element, right? The workers, but then the technology that the that the workers interact with. Uh, whether it's business automation, workflow automation, uh, data billing, you know there's all kinds of domains uh, that that all touch technology. And what I suspect we're going to start seeing first, because uh, you know some of these technologies are being deployed, but we're at the very, very tip of the iceberg. And so, one of the things that that I'm that I predict we'll see first is anything that integrates with an with an API. And of course, a lot of ERP systems and other business software systems all have APIs. Uh, so we're going to see you know basic office productivity first with you know Office 365 Copilot and being enterprise kind of coming down the pipeline. But not long after that, from a from an ERP perspective, from a from an enterprise uh, perspective, you're going to start to see probably semi autonomous AI tools. Kind of entering into that space, which is basically just going to be an extra tool in the toolbox for for existing employees uh, over time. However, and, and this I expect will actually ramp up pretty quickly with some variance. Obviously, some things require human judgment. Some things require uh, you know a licensed human to make a decision. You know, you might need a CPA or a, a lawyer to make certain judgment calls. But with that being said, we're going to see a lot more kind of piecemeal automation and that's going to get uh, scraped together over time to get to like fully autonomous on automation. Um, it's difficult to have a timeline on any, on any of these things but a lot of the underlying technical capacity is there especially with some of the latest generative AI models you know one of them uh, several of them uh, gorilla is the name of it is trained to access 10,000 different APIs right out mm-hmm. of the box. So already you have a tremendous amount of capability, uh, but it takes time to integrate. It takes time to test, and it takes time to make sure that you do these things correctly and you don't harm the business. Yeah. Right? It's all about the bottom line. That's kind of my initial thoughts as to where generative AI is going to take the ERP trajectory.
2: Fascinating, uh, David. Um, I, I love your response. And so, speaking of harming the business, do you have any thoughts on on this question? What changes do you foresee in financial systems and policies and regulations due to AI and how might this impact ERP structures or business systems in general?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, so the the prevailing wisdom right now, and you you see this in uh, regulation uh, talks, particularly in the European Union. There's some talk about this uh, in the United States as well. But the idea is that you know, human in the loop, human in the loop. That's that's kind of the drumbeat that they're beating, which is basically that no matter how autonomous any of these ai systems become that there should be a person making a decision and of course in any kind of business automation tool or platform you usually have checkpoints right where it's like okay you need a human approval so in in that respect i think that there's not going to be a whole uh, not a whole heck of a lot of difference you know moving forward However. What I think we're going to find is that some of those bottlenecks, you're basically going to end up with people that their primary role is just kind of rubber stamping decisions or suggestions that the machine is making. Mm -hmm. And then you get decision fatigue. And so decision fatigue, uh, organizational psychologists will be familiar with this, but basically anytime an employee has to make a decision, it kind of costs a little bit of, you know, their mental steam for the day. And if you're making repetitive decisions, eventually you just kind of get lazier and lazier. And it's not that's not an indictment of people, but like your brain just gets tired and you kind of start choosing shorthand. And so, you know, in terms of how regulations are going to play out, financial uh, regulations are going to play out, but then also harming the business, I think we're quickly going to discover that machines are going to be much more reliable at making some kinds of decisions. And this is some of the work and experiments that I've done where Sure, you know if any of your audience is familiar, and they you plug in, you know, Chat GPT, and you ask it for an answer, and it'll kind of you know barf out an answer that may or may not be any good. <laughs> there are things that you can do with these to check itself, to check its own work, or have a, a system of checks to make sure that the work that it thinks that it's doing is is good, and so. What I suspect the first big bottleneck is going to be is is going to be that, OK, well, if the machine is, you know, it's like running on a treadmill, right? The treadmill is going to keep going whether or not the human's on it. And yeah. so these autonomous and semi-autonomous generative AI tools that are going to be throughout the organization, they're going to be able to keep running whether or not the human is even awake, you know, at the wheel. Trains have a have kind of a dead man button where like every five minutes you have to push a button to make sure that the train operator is still awake. Yeah. Right. And uh, I think that we're gonna we're gonna see a few problems there because and we've already seen this with Zillow for instance where they used AI to put in bids for a lot of property and they ended up buying way too much property and driving up the price of real estate in some of the markets that they were operating in. Why? Because there was no human oversight. And so that I I don't know how it's gonna play out, but that is where I see kind of the first big big hurdle in terms of okay how do we how do we implement these technologies in order to of course increase productivity without unintended consequences like you know driving up your your prices or making bad otherwise just any kind of bad decisions automatically Well, good insight, David. Um, I'd like to ask you
2: now, then, some questions about global collaboration in AI development. And you have another video about the importance of global collaboration and dialogue in AI development. So I'd like to draw parallels to that discussion. And I think, David, that the YouTube uh, video was the AGI Moloch Mm -hmm. equilibrium attractor states and heuristic imperatives, how to achieve utopia. But my first question in regards to that video was, how can such collaboration shape AI's evolution in business, business systems and business in general, or in terms of the ERP context?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. And, you know, to provide a little bit of of context for that video, the work that I was doing, you know, everyone in movies and books and popular media, there's a lot of like really negative possible outcomes that people are afraid of, you know, the you might have heard the term doomer, right? Mm-hmm. People that think that AI is going to kill everyone or it's going to take all of our jobs and then every corporation is going to basically be like running as a zombie organization that has no employees but makes billions of dollars. And while those outcomes are not likely, any movement towards some of those really negative outcomes could be problematic, could be dangerous, you know, make life worse for some people and better for others and tip the scale towards inequality. And so that's the framing context to answer your question in terms of open source collaboration or transparent research. And so there's actually, these were not my ideas, by the way. These are just ideas that have been kicked around within the AI alignment and research spaces. And so there's two uh, international organizations that were kind of the inspiration for some of these ideas. One was CERN, which is CERN is based in France and they run the gigantic particle accelerators. And that international research, it pulls together like 10,000 physicists on an annual basis. They have a budget of, I think, like $6 billion. Uh, and they publish all of their research to the participating nations because the value of that research is just so high that it's not worth keeping private. And then the second organization is similar. It's ITER or ETER, which is um, trying to build fusion reactors, and of course, you know the the joke in the industry is fusion is is always 10, twenty years away. <laughs> uh, but the idea is that fusion would be so economically valuable to everyone that again, it's not worth keeping it private. And so AI is kind of the third pillar that is very similar, where the possible benefit to all businesses, all nations, the entire human race is so high that this is the kind of thing that it would be worth creating an open source or international. Uh, research consortium. And so there's talk about doing it. A lot of us put all of our work out there for free, open source. Uh, And so that is just part of the way that the industry is going. And when you have a new technology like this, that it's kind of like the Wild West. Nobody knows left from right. Uh, And so we're all kind of scrambling to move as quickly as we can. At, At the beginning, I played with the idea of keeping some of my work private. But then it's just like, okay, the rest of the industry moves on. And you know, one of the mantras that I came up with that I kind of repeat is that aligned AI is good for business. Aligned AI is good for more than just business. It's good for everyone. And so that's kind of the underlying ethos that kind of drives some of these decisions where... Obviously, every corporation has some protected IP. You know, they're going to have some proprietary software and, and innovations. But by and large, the amount of possibility here is just so great. It's like a blue ocean fishing expedition. You just go out, you cast your line, you get your fish, and there's enough room for everyone to get their fish. So that's kind of that's kind of the background of that mentality.
2: And David, when you talk about uh, aligned AI is good for business, what role could regulatory frameworks play in promoting ethical ai use in corporate landscapes and don't we all benefit if it is uh, we're all aligned you know it's not just that ai is aligned for business ai alignment in general is good for mm-hmm. business right so what sure. what do you have to say about regulatory frameworks and how it promotes ethical ai use and, and this is actually a, something you talk about as well in this particular video that we referred
0: to earlier yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so here's the thing is, some of these, whether it's a regulatory framework or or an industry-based framework, uh, basically, we're at a point where nobody really knows how to get started. And so this is actually some of the feedback that I've gotten from some of my clients uh, is actually that the the work that I've done, some of the frameworks that I have built uh, or or relayed that either come from uh, universities or governments or uh, commissions, basically it's just a roadmap. That's the way to think about it is that, you know, okay, yes, regulations are there to say like, you know, well, you have to, you know, be this high to ride this ride, or you have to do things in a certain way, otherwise you'll get fines or whatever. But really- you know, because this industry is moving so fast, everyone needs all the help that they can get. And so by having a clear framework, whether it's a regulatory framework or a roadmap or whatever, if you think about it as it's there to help you in order to adopt these things safely, because here's an example from a conversation that I had with one of my clients is that Uh, He went before his board of directors, and his board of directors—they were all like in a panic because we got to do generative AI, but we we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know how to get started. And so he carried (laughs) some of the work that I had done, and it just had all the answers ready to go. And they're like, by the end of the meeting, they they had the confidence that they knew how to approach generative AI safely because it's about de-risking it, right? If you implement a new technology and it goes sideways, you could be on the hook for you know damages or losses or or whatever. And so the idea is, you got to move fast, but if you're too reckless, you're going to do unintended harm. And so that's why uh, a lot of these regulatory frameworks or or guidelines or roadmaps are coming out is because everyone is lost and everyone's doing, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, everyone's trying to catch up as fast as they can. So really, that's that's my primary recommendation is just look at it as a roadmap. This is how you do it right. If you follow the instructions, you know, you won't burn the mac and cheese. <laughs>
2: So, David, let's chat more about the alignment and control problem. How might the heuristic imperatives guide the pursuit of these positive outcomes in AI development application within businesses? And maybe to ask the same question in a slightly different way, I think your solution to all of this is what you call heuristic imperatives. So can you please Mm -hmm. elaborate for our listeners what that means and then how it's a potential solution to the alignment control problem?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for some background, when I first got my hands on these technologies, I realized we had invented thinking machines. And that was a really profound realization to, to sit with. And I said, well, if you've got a machine that can think about anything, how does it know what to think about? How does it know what to do? And so the first couple of years of of work that I did on this, this generation of uh, GPT technology, uh, it, it did take about two years to figure it out was, okay, what what are the general principles that an autonomous or semi-autonomous AI should abide by in order to just not go wrong? And the end result of that two years of work was what I call heuristic imperatives. And so a heuristic uh, is a shorthand. It's a rule of thumb. It's a way of making decisions or judgments very quickly. And then an imperative is a command or a mandate. And so, I, what I ultimately came up with was a, a framework of three heuristic imperatives that serve as kind of the highest, like moral compass or a set of principles or, or guiding principles for any autonomous uh, AI system. And that is uh, reduce suffering in the universe, increase prosperity in the universe, and increase understanding in the universe. And so, when I I published all this work and I started giving examples and, and demos. Uh, Of course, some of my clients started integrating these into their chatbots. And and the feedback that I got was, whether it was a chatbot or one of them was an autonomous research assistant, was that by incorporating these principles into the design of these generative AI tools, it gave them a a broader context, a more global context or or scope of thought that kind of kept them on like, okay, whatever else is true, this is my purpose. This is why I exist. This is why I was built. And, you know, all corporations, whether they're providing goods or services, they are there to increase prosperity. That is why corporations exist is because they're efficiency seeking systems to provide necessary goods and services that ultimately, if you drill down pretty much every business on the planet ultimately either reduces the suffering of someone or increases their prosperity or teaches them something, mm-hmm. right? Like that's why medical care exists. This is why therapy exists. This is why cars exist, right? Mm-hmm. Everything exists. And so these universal principles that I came up with are really, one, they're easy to implement and that's one of their one of their strengths. But then it also just gives a, a more nuanced understanding as to like why the AI tool exists And by incorporating that rather than, because here's the thing, let me take a step back, is when people start designing AI tools, they often think very tactically. And by tactically, I mean like, you know, Follow this step, follow this step, follow this step. It's like the uh, the peanut butter sandwich, right? You know, you give someone really explicit instructions on to make a peanut butter sandwich without ever describing what the end goal actually is. Yeah. <laughs> and so by providing some of that context, some of that like strategic context, it tends to make pretty much everything that the AI does a little bit better. Um, and that has actually evolved to what I now call mission-oriented programming um, that was uh, described in one of my most recent videos.
2: Fascinating topic, David. Thank you for that. Yeah. And now I, I'd like to ask you a question really regarding AI people and, and organizational change. So um, let me pick your brain here for a minute. Sure. And and so relating to your video about uh, Ray Kurzweil, and, and we'll put the, this link in our show notes for our listeners, The Ray Kurzweil had a prediction of biological immortality and its implications. So let's bring it back to AI's potential role in, in organizational change for a moment. So mm-hmm. you you state in this video that quote compounding returns and that it is nearly impossible to accurately predict how new technologies will recombine specifically AI nanotech genetics quantum computing and other scientific breakthroughs will almost certainly combine in unexpected ways and therefore have a uh, rather profound effect or impact on, on people, and, and certainly uh, in our field, Nestle & Associates' field of work, organizational change. You then alluded to the iPhone as an example. So mm-hmm. when you think of the impact from more of a social perspective, how could advancements in AI catalyze organizational change in uh, merger and acquisition environments, for example? Any thoughts uh, put you on the spot with a, with a question <laughs> like that? But um, wh- what would you say about that?
0: Yeah, well, first to address the technological and scientific aspect. Certainly there's going to be new products and services that are coming. Uh, entirely new categories, right? This is where the tech industry is is right now is they're they're obsessed with creating new categories of goods and services and products all built around generative AI. Now, with that being said, there's plenty of brick and mortar businesses out there. You know, some of my clients they do parts or they do uh, hospitality, right? Where you know they might not be subject to AI because, say, for instance, you travel to Singapore. Even if you know you maximize the amount of AI and robotics, you still need a hotel, right? You still need a pool. You still need you know there's 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 some things that aren't going to change. At the same time, some industries, some sectors, there's a lot that can change. Uh, there's, so there's a few things that I kind of predict may happen to some sectors. Uh, that is, in in some cases, I predict that the margins are going to become so narrow, the industries are not going to be able to survive as they are today. And so what I mean by that is in, in the cases of organizations or sectors that are primarily providing services that can be done. Uh, electronically, the amount of reduction of cost that generative AI is capable of producing, you're not looking at you know, shaving off 5% or 10%. You're looking at cost reduction of 10x to 1,000x of some services. And in those cases, the margins just get too narrow and the products or services are going to get absorbed by other organizations or other entities. In those cases, those might be targets for acquisitions as the the margins collapse. Some services might also be moved and provided at the municipal level. Uh, so, for instance, I wouldn't be surprised if healthcare, as as some of these technologies recombine and drive down the cost of healthcare it might not be viable for them to be for-profit services anymore. So it's going to vary a lot sector to sector. And of course, there's probably going to be some new sector. I was just listening to some podcasts from the industrial side and the way that people are expecting things to go with uh, industrial robotics, uh, you know, humanoid robotics, kind of displacing factory workers, uh, you know, that's going to create an entirely new demand for people building, maintaining, and programming humanoid robots. At the same time, what happens to those uh, human workers? Uh, and there's a lot, a lot of questions that are kind of still up in the air. And as I did mention in that video, it is very difficult to predict. Exactly what's going to happen. So it's kind of a, keep your ear to the ground and, and yeah. keep your eyes open to see what's what's coming down the pipeline. It's it's the
2: wild frontier. It's it's uh, absolutely amazing to me and exciting, uh, I guess, to to see where this goes. Uh, for that very mm-hmm. reason, um, you know, David, we talked about this idea of frameworks, but. What strategies should businesses adapt to in order to manage changes that come with AI implementation? Can you share with our listeners anything specific along the strategic lines on, on how to manage through these changes that you just referred to uh, when it comes to AI implementation within an organization?
0: Yeah. So this is, this is where we can kind of dive into the crawl, walk, run, fly model. So the crawl, walk, run, fly model comes typically more from within the technology stack. Uh, so anytime you're, you're implementing or experimenting with a new uh, technology or discipline, it's kind of this mentality of you know, when you first get started with something, you're not going to know what you're doing. You're going to fall down a lot, you know, just like toddlers learning to walk, right? You fall down, you bump your head. Uh, it hurts, uh, you learn, and you move on. Um, and so this, this crawl, walk, run, fly model is uh, the first thing that, that, that companies need to do. And this is companies, this is individuals in the company, is first overcome the fear and demystify this technology. Because like any big, gigantic, sudden change, it is overwhelming. It is scary. There's unknown unknowns. And so the crawl phase of this model is uh, just get your hands dirty, right? Go play with it. Create environments for for yourself and your employees that there's no risk of failure. So here's an example from when I was uh, participating in a startup is I was, you know, years and years ahead of, of some of the, the younger guys. And I was teaching them how to, how to, you know, get their feet wet with the generative AI uh, techniques and, and implementation strategies. And one of the younger guys, he just completely froze up because he's like, well, but I don't know how to do this. And, and you know, Dave knows you know, infinitely more than I do. And, and I told him, I was like, I know you're going to mess up. I know you're going to fail. The point is to learn, not to produce, you know, on day one. You know, there's all kinds of ways that companies can address this. You can do hackathons, you can do competitions, you can just do it for fun, right? Like do something that is completely unrelated to your business. Like who can come up with the funniest story, right? With chat GPT, something like that, just so that you get, you get used to these new technologies and you start to build an intuition. So that's the crawl phase. The walk phase is when you start to actually do some prototyping, you, uh, you create a POC or an MVP or a pilot program, and you don't necessarily have to build these things internally either. There's more uh, software as a service and off the shelf white box products and services available today. Uh, but the idea is you do have to actively experiment. And that means with experimentation, you will still fail. You will say like, well, you know, we thought we were going to use you know Bing Enterprise or Perplexity or whatever, uh, and we just we didn't get the value from it. Okay, cool. If it doesn't work, let it go. Try something else. But the idea is, uh, I, I got this from uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Actually, is is you know, by God, <laughs> just try something, <laughs> right? Yeah. Just keep trying something right. until it works. Yeah. Um, and so that's the walk phase. And then once you get the first thing that really works, that really adds value. And when you know, you know that it's really adding value when people suddenly can't live without it, right? It's like. Well, you know, you gave me this new toy and you you said that we're not going to pay for it anymore, but it's really going to hurt my, my workflow. That's how you know that it's really kind of stuck the landing or, or you, you at least found a niche. Uh, and then the run phase is where you start to operationalize that you say, okay, cool. We found the first thing that works. Let's find the second thing that works. Let's deploy it as broadly as we can across the entire organization and really aim for saturation. Uh, and that's going to be a more kind of conventional approach from an ERP perspective. And then finally, the fly phase. And this is kind of optional depending on the the particular sector or business. But this is where you create a center of excellence around generative AI. In uh, creating a center of excellence will absolutely be necessary for some organizations because it's going to change their entire industry. Like I said, for some like hotel chains, probably isn't going to change that much. But if you're a law firm or an insurance company, you probably absolutely will need a center of excellence because of just how fundamentally AI is going to change your business. So that's the crawl, walk, run, fly model at a kind of 30,000 foot view.
2: Well, interesting. Um, David, You know what we do know is that corporate culture is crucial to ERP organizational change success. Could the emergence of new tech domains and markets due to AI influence corporate culture and employee engagement? You know, so for example, you mentioned earlier this idea of humanoid robots, or maybe not quite that extreme, maybe even just, uh, you know, the current deployment of ChatGPT. Do you have any comments or thoughts on how just AI in general can or is or will impact this idea of corporate culture, which is the interaction of people, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> What's your thoughts there? I mean, that's a big corporate culture is a big part of what we do. And, and it's a huge yep. part of the success of what we call very deliberately. We, we don't call it ERP implementation. We call it ERP organizational change because it right. definitely takes that triad, right? The people process and technology. And I know that can seem a bit cliche-ish, uh, but it's true. And, you know, corporate culture and leadership is a huge part of, of successful implementation of that technology and utilization and optimization of that technology. Any general comments as far as due to the AI influence? What could corporate culture look like or how could it be changed?
0: Yeah, so there's there's a few uh, conversations that I'm aware of that are happening, uh, particular to culture. So uh, many entrepreneurs that are kind of uh, you know hard charging, blazing the trails for others. One of the things that they say is that you know they have no intention of laying off any employees if they can avoid it, because this is this is of course. Uh, where you're gonna get a lot of fear in the in the company culture. And certainly having worked at several companies going through major transitions, you know, some people will react with fear and kind of clam up or kind of throw up their walls and and defenses. And that just makes work less pleasant for everyone. But what some of these entrepreneurs and business leaders are saying is they have every intention of keeping every employee, but the expectation is that they will invest time in learning, uh, and, and mastering these new technologies. Uh, and so from a culture perspective, you know, the thing that, that, that I hope to see is, uh, you know, the concept of BS jobs going away, right? Like if you have to have a, today, there are jobs that humans have to do just because machines can't do them, but they might be boring. They might be unfulfilling. They might be kind of mundane. Uh, but the thing is, is humans are smart. Like we're the smartest animal on the planet. And so nobody really deeply enjoys kind of a a menial job. Some people like, you know, the low stakes and the low pressure, that's fine. But we are intrinsically curious and creative animals. And what I hope will happen is that uh, people will see that AI, uh, even though it probably will dislocate some jobs, it will get us away from kind of the drudgery and allow us to move more towards really using our creativity and our executive function and our problem solving. Now, you know, that's kind of pie in the sky. That's, that's the, the hope and dream, right? Uh, if I were still working a corporate job, I would be using all the AI tools that I could to automate as much as I could of my job. And I would find that fascinating and fun and like, Hey, can I automate an entire department? (laughs) You know, I can be the man behind the curtains, you know, pay no attention to me. I'm just running all the autonomous gizmos. Um, now on a more practical level, I think that, that Generative AI is going to help with things like training uh, and communication probably first because generative AI tools like ChatGPT, they can read huge volumes of, of information, but then they can also train you or maybe not even train you, but like just kind of be a co-pilot in terms of writing emails and writing Slack messages and planning meetings. And so by having this kind of cognitive co-pilot, this is the term from Psychology Today, actually, a article that came out last week. By having and deploying these cognitive co-pilots, it can really increase the emotional intelligence and communication skills for everyone. And that alone will probably have a pretty profound impact on corporate culture in the long run. Mm. But again, you have to get people using these tools. So I mean, there's there's a million different little ways that generative AI could either directly or indirectly influence corporate culture. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And David, you've talked about the idea of post-labor economics in your videos. And and I'm intrigued to discuss its relevance to ERP organizational change, uh, if we may. So, how could the shift to post labor economics affect businesses in their ERP or business systems? And and actually, David, you may want to start out by defining post labor economics for our listeners, yeah. if you would. <laughs> yeah. Thanks.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, right now the way that economics work is there's a relationship between uh, workers, laborers, businesses and the government. Those are kind of the three primary actors. You might also say that that banks or financial institutions are kind of the fourth actor, but from a labor perspective, it's not necessarily directly relevant. But we're, we're already seeing some of this happening out in the industry, where call centers are kind of the first departments that are not necessarily being shuttered, but we're seeing you know 90% of the department being laid off in some cases. And then on the industrial front, the other podcast I was listening to, you know, the goal is to have basically every factory be a lights out factory. And so, you know, if you can replace many or most of your frontline workers, then, you know, that's going to really change a lot. That's going to really fundamentally change the labor market landscape. And as it is today, so... I and others have done some some uh, experiments. I think it was Goldman Sachs or whatever published a, a similar thing where they basically concluded that 25% of jobs to, today are already vulnerable to AI, and it could be 70% you know as, as soon as 2030. Mm-hmm. And so there will probably always be some kinds of labor that are just ideal for humans to do, and we don't have to get into the specifics uh, unless you want to, but you know, when most of the economic productivity comes from machines and those machines are owned by corporations, that really kind of cuts out the human labor aspect. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to really kind of fundamentally change the relationship that uh, corporations have to human labor. It's going to change the relationship that consumers and voters have to businesses. And that is the overall context of what I mean by post-labor economics is the greatest constraint placed on uh, corporations today, the biggest bottleneck is human labor, right? It's one of the most expensive aspects of business. And so on the one hand, what I hope what I expect to see is that with the rise of AI and machines, uh, we're going to see this just unprecedented amount of economic productivity where the you know price of goods and services just you know is cratered. Uh, it goes way, way down because that's what technology typically does over time is that it lowers the cost of goods and services. At the same time, it's going to liberate a lot of us from, uh, you know, the desk jobs and and whatever else. But there's a lot to renegotiate in terms of the relationship that we have between, you know, what is the government's role? What is the voters and the laborers role? And what is the business's role uh, in doing all this? Because and something that a lot of people point out, it's like, well, if all the laborers lose their jobs and they have no income, then they can't they can't buy anything from the companies anyways. So then we're back to square one. And so I don't know how it's going to shake out, but this is the trend that I see. And in terms of what it does for organizations on an individual level, uh, obviously, if you reduce your your uh, employee headcount by ninety percent in the long run, there's a whole lot that's going to change in terms of you know who's left. How do you pay them, and how does your relationship change to to your consumers, to the government? So there's there's a lot to unpack there.
2: And speaking of how do you pay them, David, that that's exactly there is a lot there, and it's such a fascinating topic. So I want to um, kind of drill down a little bit further and ask you two more, sure. maybe uh, not so common questions in that regards. But you know, as you'd mentioned, if AI can fundamentally change the relationship between human labor and business. How might redistributive policies such as universal basic income impact businesses and ERP and business systems? so again, kind of a general question, but you know there there's a lot of talk about that, right and the idea of uh, universal basic income and and that's where AI is going to take us and so any just general thoughts on on how that could fundamentally change and impact businesses and their use of business systems or ERP?
0: Yeah, so I want to frame this answer as. I don't necessarily think this is the way that it's going to go, but this is a common idea that's out there. Um, And so it very well may be the way that it's going to go, but I'm not personally endorsing this policy. But one thing that people think is likely to happen is that corporations are going to be taxed in proportion to the amount of productivity that they generate from machines, whether it's AI or robots or, or whatever. And so the idea is that you're basically going to be, uh, it's almost like an inverse like VAT tax, where it's like, okay, rather than being taxed at the transaction, you're going to be taxed based on how much of your revenue comes from non-human labor. Um, now, how that shapes the organization, I'm not really sure, but the idea is that, okay, yes, you know, go be a trillion dollar company, go be a quadrillion dollar company, but you're going to pay in proportion to um, how much revenue you generate through these other means, and then that revenue could be used for any number of things. Um, you know, universal basic income is one possibility. Uh, people are afraid of inflationary pressures from from something like redistributive policies, but one thing that that a lot of people forget is that job loss is deflationary. So we might actually need uh, inflationary pressure from redistribution in order to offset. The deflation if we end up losing millions and millions of jobs so remember all this is contingent upon the assumption that jobs are going away permanently which could be wrong i don't see any evidence that it's wrong yet one way or the other but if that's the direction that it does go and you end up with companies that have relatively few employees but millions or billions in revenue they're going to need to participate in the broader ecosystem in a slightly different uh kind of paradigm than what we have today yeah sure well,
2: David, I, I'm sure my next question here is a bit—it's uh, pretty unique question, I suppose. Sure. But in the context of post-labor economics, as you discuss with our listeners, how can new measures of well-being, like the like the well-being index or Maslow's hierarchy of needs? be integrated into future ERP systems?
0: You know, that's actually a really interesting question. I didn't expect something like that. Um, you know, so this is actually something that I've been working on personally. Um, you know, I, I'm technically semi-retired now. Uh, I work, uh, I take two weeks off every month, except for making YouTube videos sometimes, but I'm taking all of August off. And well-being is this really weird thing <laughs> where we are so used to working hard every day and learning to slow down and learning to like reclaim some autonomy and learning to like basically slow down and smell the roses right there's so much inertia that's built up in a productive uh or production oriented society like ours and so in terms of how do you measure it right one of the best uh i guess uh frameworks um, i'm a big fan of frameworks is um uh, Roger Walsh's therapeutic lifestyle changes (TLC). So he he created this framework of of eight lifestyle changes that you can do that gear you towards well being. And I'm I'm not going to be able to remember all of them off the top of my head, but uh, you know it's time with friends and loved ones, rest and relaxation, time spent on hobbies, time spent in nature, uh, spirituality or religion, uh, those sorts of things. So it's this inventory. Of like eight areas in your life that you can invest in, and the more well-rounded you are in those eight areas, generally the happier you are, or the or, you know the higher your well-being. Now that's more of a uh, therapeutic framework rather than a metric, but I could easily see that uh, being converted into a survey, like you know how much time do you spend yeah, with friends right. per week, or how much time do you spend mm-hmm. in nature per week. So if those metrics turn out to be useful and probative. Uh, I think that it would actually be pretty easy to measure people's well-being as we renegotiate a new social contract, uh, you know, our relationship to labor and companies
2: yeah again fascinating stuff here david uh you know clearly you uh, have thought quite deeply about many of these topics and I, I really appreciate that you had a video one of your youtube videos here just a couple of weeks ago uh and i want to draw on that video and that was elon musk focus on ai and its alignment with human goals and again we'll put this link in the show notes but i have a couple of questions regarding strategic implications of ai in business so how can businesses, especially those involved in M&A, incorporate AI into their strategic planning, keeping the objective function of maximizing understanding in mind? Mm. So I know um, you've kind of alluded to that. We touched on it earlier in a conversation a little bit, but can you dig uh, dig into that a little bit further?
0: Yeah, yeah. So for some context, um, Elon Musk started X.AI. And the the objective function that he has picked for his ai is to achieve maximum understanding of the universe so this is a uh, an ai that is pure curiosity unbridled curiosity for the sake of just you know move towards the truth whatever the truth happens to be uh which you know from a uh, intellectual perspective i think that's a wonderful objective function i don't think it's necessarily the best objective function for an ai particularly if it's going to become uh, super intelligent, but it's a good yeah. start. Now, how that intersects with, uh, with strate- you know, looking forward strategically for uh, M&A uh, activities, one thing to keep in mind is, uh, well, as I mentioned earlier, in some cases, I think margins are going to really thin out. So if, if I had a checkbook with a billion dollars, I would not be buying any companies where most of the labor is actuarial or that sort of thing. like Even law work. I think is the the margins are just going to completely collapse, mm-hmm. um, and I have I have some lawyer friends that, that are actually worried about that. But fortunately, yeah. you you need to be licensed to practice law. The lawyers will be around for a while, even if the you know law oriented products and services maybe thin out. Um, yeah. Now, in terms of you know objective functions and and the direction that AI is going. You know, it's almost like you have to look in terms of first principles, right? Because there's there's so much inertia in the marketplace today of things that exist because you know of trends that are decades old. And so, the, one of the things that I look for, and again, this is just completely amateur advice, is what is actually needed by consumers, right? Like, what are the, and I don't I don't mean like you know durable consumer goods necessarily, but that's a, that's not a bad place to start. Like, we all need a uh, place to live, we need food, we need healthcare. And so by by kind of taking a first principles approach to looking at the way that industries and sectors are going to be impacted, I feel like that's probably a good way to say like, okay, well, whatever else changes, you know, people are going to need basic goods and services. And then, you know, some, some goods and services might go away or they might fundamentally change. So for instance, uh, you know, we briefly touched on longevity earlier. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, 20, 50 years from now, hospitals go out of business uh, because uh-huh. we don't need them anymore. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, that's that's a really like, you know, pie in the sky. It's possibly crazy thought, would, isn't it? Yeah. Wishful thinking. <laughs> right. <laughs> but funny. it's it's not it's it's not outside the realm of possibilities. And the reason is, you know, the after within within weeks of making that video, there's been there's been several. Um, uh articles published about uh, combinations, new cocktails of exotic you know uh, plant medicines that actually biologically reduce the age of your cells. Uh, and and it's been you know validated and there's mouse models proving this and it just seems like we're accelerating. And so, you know, just as an example, imagine that this trend just take it out to the nth degree. okay everyone is as healthy as they were when they were 18 years old, like that would be great. Let me tell you, I've got some joints that will be really happy with me if we can do that. But if everyone is as healthy as they were when they were 18, that completely changes the healthcare industry. And then all of the subsidiary industries that are entailed by the healthcare industry. So that's kind of the direction that things might be going. So, you know, I might not be investing in hospitals, but, you know, you invest in the AI that can make the new medicines. Uh, There's a meme going around that says, uh, when everyone's digging for gold, sell shovels. Um, And so uh, that's that's why the uh, NVIDIA stock price has tripled in the last six months because they're selling the shovels. So I don't know if that helps answer your question, but that's kind of word on the street right now. Yeah, no, that's good. Thank you, David. I appreciate that. What
2: strategies can businesses employ to ensure that their AI initiatives align with human curiosity and the goal of understanding? You know, you look just at chat GPT, for instance, and, you know, you've got students now writing papers in you know, five minutes. (laughs) And and I know there's a lot going on there in terms of uh, being able to determine what's what's written by, you know, AI and what's not. But any thoughts on just strategies that our listeners can consider and employ? To ensure that this idea of human curiosity and the goal of understanding continues to be a major part of corporate culture despite these incredible advances in AI.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, I guess I'll answer in two parts. The first part will be from an evolutionary perspective of humans, and the second part will be from more of an organizational perspective. Um, I'm imagining you've probably read The Fifth Discipline, uh, and many of you listeners probably have as well. But from an evolutionary perspective, humans, like we double down on intelligence, right? The smarter you are, the better off you are, because you can solve more problems, and you can solve them faster. Um, this is particularly true in the tech industry. And this is this is kind of what I built my career on, is that you've got a star player who can solve a technology problem literally a hundred times faster than someone who isn't. And like I can't tell you the number of times that I was, you know, roped into a an IT problem that they had been fiddling with for hours, sometimes days, and I figured it out in 20 minutes. And so intelligence is almost always advantageous and you know you might say well intelligence on its own is not the same as wisdom or understanding when i say intelligence i mean all of the above the judicious application of problem solving to achieve good outcomes so from an evolutionary perspective more understanding is always better the more you understand the business the technology the market the more you understand people the better you're going to do. And, you know, this is proven out by all the greatest leaders throughout all of history. They were all prodigious readers. Um, And if they weren't prodigious readers, they talked to everyone that they could and learned directly from people. So understanding is always advantageous. And then from an organizational perspective, to me, the most valuable thing that I learned from reading the fifth discipline was the concept of the learning organization. And it's it's a different paradigm when rather than thinking of people as cogs, you think of people as active participants in raising the tribal knowledge of the entire organization. And I think that AI has the ability to turn that up to 11. And so, you know, I guess the TLDR that I'd, I'd give you and your listeners is, focus on being that learning organization, focus on using the superpower that humans have, which is our intelligence. And of course, you know, no two people are are created equal in terms of cognitive abilities, uh, whether it's emotional intelligence or visuospatial intelligence or whatever. You know, there's, I think there's like 8,000 different types of intelligence that have been categorized by some psychologists. Everyone has different strengths and weaknesses. And really what, what I would say focusing on in terms of, developing that culture and developing curiosity is allow people to really flourish and focus on whatever their key strengths are and figure out a way to allow them to contribute back to the tribal knowledge of the whole organization and that's where you'll see some really really good magic happening i think
2: fascinating insight david as usual uh, i love it all right, David, you, you mentioned in your video, DeepMind, OpenAI, Microsoft, Oxford, Global AI Research and Regulation is Coming, that you are deeply optimistic about the future of AI. So my question to you is why, but I also know that you are not saying that AI is a salvation fantasy or the, fa- the false promise of utopia and so forth. So, um, so, so I know that you've actually discussed this idea in two different videos, I think it was, but why do you feel optimistic? at the same time saying that AI isn't a salvation fantasy. So Hmm. I think you believe in more of an AI balance and correct me if I'm wrong, but why?
0: (laughs) Yeah. uh, Great question. And uh, thanks for asking that one. Yeah. So first uh, the reason that I'm optimistic is because there are no problems that have been posited or proposed or discovered or theorized that are not solvable. Uh, And this is, you know, this is part of just how science works is you publish a paper you read a paper there's a problem and it seems unsolvable uh, but I haven't seen any evidence that any of the problems before us you know are beyond our capability to solve and and that includes some of the risks right whether it's a regulatory risk or an existential risk or whatever uh, i I don't see any reason uh, that that the the problems that have been outlined discovered and even some of the unknown unknowns that crop up um, you know, as, as a career problem solver, I don't see anything that is intrinsically unsolvable. So that's why I'm so optimistic. Now, at the same time, uh, the, the idea of, of a, what's called a salvation fantasy or a utopian narrative is the idea that, that the, that the, the ends justify the means that, uh, you know, some people might have a, a vision, their personal vision of the future of how it should be, or how it could be, or how it ought to be. And what can happen? And this is this is just a cognitive bias that people have. Um, I've been subject to it, and I'm sure every business leader has been subject to it. Where you envision an outcome that you want, and you forget to pay attention to right now, and that's the that's the primary thing. And this is there's a there's a business philosophy out there called long termism. Elon Musk is a long termist, and this is one of the primary uh, criticisms I have. Not that it's intrinsically a bad idea. But if you spend too much time with your head in the future, it's called future surfing, then you forget about the present. And so this is why I always urge caution about utopian narratives and salvation fantasies, because yes, the future almost certainly will be better if we do things right. But that means that everything that you do today, one step at a time, also has to be the right thing to do. Um, There's a turn of phrase that I learned. It's called just do the next right thing whatever your long-term goal is, whatever problems you're facing, whatever you're afraid of, just you know, keep your feet where you're, where you're at right now today and just do the next right thing. And eventually one step after another, you'll get to a better place. And so that's why I, I urge caution against utopian narratives or, or kind of putting the cart before the horse, right? There's, you know, they got a, I got a whole bag of idioms I can pull out for this one, but that, <laughs> I think you get the idea. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that that's great, David. Um, so so David as we wrap up this incredibly insightful conversation I'd like to ask you for your golden nugget. So given all that we've discussed today could you briefly summarize the key takeaways our listeners should remember and based on these insights what is the single most valuable piece of advice you would offer and leave with our listeners as they navigate their own journeys in organizational uh, it while well, just in, in AI in general.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think uh, to both of those, it's, it's probably the same thing and it's just roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. Um, yeah. It's time. Uh, I know that, that some people are going to be probably, uh, you know, um, lagging uh, indicators or uh, you know late adopters, but you know, there's not really anything to be afraid of. And there's, there's just so much to gain. Um, and you're, you're not going to lose anything by doing some experiments and, poke, poke the, uh, poke the new technology, you know, get the shiny new toy and and just see what you can do with it. Um, you know, best case scenario, it changes your company and it changes the trajectory of your entire life and your entire career. Worst case scenario, you can't use it yet. So either way, like you learn something and, uh, but yeah, just roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty, try it, see where you go and, uh, talk to people about it. Uh, cause we're all in this together and it's, Uh, One thing I tell people is this is the most exciting time to be alive uh, in the history of all of humanity. We are living through the fourth industrial revolution. And so it's just a privilege to be part of it and to be seeing it in real time. And I'm sure we'll all look back and be like, wow, can you believe we used to do all this stuff manually, you know, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, yeah, we'll get to that future one day.
2: Well, David, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I really do appreciate your your time and your dedication to your trade and to AI and your. Uh, your approach to ai your academic based approach to ai and sharing with people and i highly encourage people to check out your youtube channel and we'll have the link to your youtube channel in our show notes before we go can you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you
0: yeah so there's um there's two simple ways to get in touch with me uh one is linkedin Um, just if you, uh, send a connection request, uh, just make sure you add a note as to how you heard about me or kind of what you'd expect to get out of the relationship. And then the second is, uh, I am available for consulting. As I mentioned, um, I do prime, I do most of my one-off consulting through my Patreon. You can have the link in the show notes as well. But I am also available for longer term engagements, uh, short term contracts, uh, speaking engagements, that sort of thing, uh, teaching engagements. Um, So, yeah, just reach out on Patreon or LinkedIn. Uh, That's the best way to get a hold of me. Awesome.
2: Well, thank you again, David. Be well and uh, we'll talk soon.
1: Thank you so much. Take care. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the ERP OCJ podcast. This podcast is intended as a forum to study, share, and discuss ERP organizational change successes and challenges. We discuss the people, process, and technological components of ERP organizational change by drawing on knowledge from extensive research, collaborative learning, and practitioner expertise and experience. We are incredibly grateful to have friends, colleagues, and mentors join us in our podcast as we seek to promote, connect, and foster relationships in the ERP organizational change community and contribute to its success by bringing research and practice closer together. We want to make sure this is the most useful and insightful ERP podcast you listen to. And we'd love your help in doing so by leaving us feedback and a review a great place to do so is at Apple Podcasts. Just click on the Listen in Apple Podcasts link, then click Ratings and Reviews, and let us know your thoughts. You can get more info about the show, including show notes and episode highlights for this and all of our episodes by visiting nestleandassociates.com and clicking the podcast option. Please join us again next week as we discuss the latest ERP organizational change research, practice, and stories. And don't forget to follow us on social media, hashtag the ERP OCJ. Thanks again for listening. Have a fantastic week.